This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Yeah, um... Uncle, my opinion on the matter is, first of all, I respect all organizations and movements and uh, efforts, and including Tablighi Jabbat, I have tremendous respect for them. I, at the same time, believe that um, going in the path of Allah takes many different shapes and forms, and that's one of them. And the point of today's entire endeavor was to encourage Muslim youth to be involved in at least something. At least something. And that was the beginning, I don't know what time you joined the the session, but the early conversation was at least that the deen requires us for us to be involved in something more than just, you know, uh, ourselves to be concerned with others. So, inshallah ta'ala, in however way that manifests, I would highly encourage youth to get involved. I got a whole bunch of text messages, so I'm going to start reading them. How do I balance keeping my followers, students, disciplined and applying all the nice leadership advice you gave? Does your advice apply in the teacher-student role as well as just in the leader-follower role? In some of my advice is, um, or some of the advice I shared with you guys from the thing is uh, universal and it can apply to the teacher-student uh, relationship, but some of it doesn't. Um, so you, that's kind of a, probably a long session on what does and what doesn't apply. But especially the leadership advice for you as a teacher does apply. Meaning the, the ability to be patient with, teach, with students and working with them and finding the balance between courtesy and authority because a leader at the end is an authority. He, has to, he or she has to exercise authority. But to do so in a way that doesn't feel authoritative. Actually, even the word amir is very wise in the Arabic language. It, there's, there are two words actually. Someone who has authority over you, over you can be amir. There's three words, amir, ammar, and amir. Amir is someone who's commanding you. Ammar is someone who keeps telling you what to do. Amir is someone who doesn't have to tell you what to do and you follow him anyway. They command authority. It's an ism sifa which doesn't act out. It's not an ism fa'il. What that suggests is... They, they're in that position of authority and they don't even have to open their mouth for people to obey them. That's what an amir is. So by definition, in the, in the language sense, the word amir suggests that you don't give a lot of instructions, they're just followed anyway. That's the quality of a good leader. You know, he doesn't have to tell so much what people should do because out of respect for that leadership, they do it anyway. So that developing that relationship of respect takes time. And that's a balance between you know, not becoming too chummy and too friendly with students, and at the same time not becoming too harsh with them either, and finding a very thin line in between those two. And when giving someone uh, genuine advice to make them walk away from haram or introducing Islam to them, or just, doing, or just to correct their wrongdoing, they often have their own beliefs or morals and see you as attacking them. They won't listen to what you have to say, even if you are sincere. Is dua the best option then to help them out? Because then you feel you are not helping them, and also you feel sorry for them. Look, telling somebody about uh, what wrong they're doing, you have to be, especially in family, you have to be direct. You have to be, you can't beat around the bush, but you have to be subtle at the same time. You have to find tact. And at the end of the day, truth hurts. And people are going to be offended. I mean, there's no way around that one. The Prophet ﷺ, there's not going to be a nicer human being on the face of this earth, and his family was extremely offended by Islam. So, sorry, that just comes with telling the truth. People are, people's feelings are hurt, and they, they say things, and they're offended by what you have to say. But you have to maintain a respectful 
uh, a posture, and you you shouldn't, you know, say those kinds of things over advice over and over again. You should find a good time to say it. It works out. It works out. It doesn't work out. Just let it go. You don't know when you say something to somebody. Maybe they don't respond to you right away, or they respond negatively right away. But the words stick in their mind, and it takes them a year, six months, whatever. And then those same words that you said to them clicked. It just it works. Every works. Everybody works on their own clock. You know. So you just do whatever best you can, and don't worry about changing people, because that comes from Allah Azza wa Jal. Wow, that's a lot of text messages, guys. Stop it. What advice would you give MSA leaders who are facing bad najwa in their shura, or facing different opinions? How would you deal with a shura person who does nothing you ask him to do? How do you establish a leadership volunteer relationship with a friend who may not take you seriously? That's a lot of questions in one line. Well, how can you, how can we balance mixed gender MSA without compromising our modesty and not be shameless? Can I serve my parents and spend my life in solitary affairs with just immediate... Okay, that's... Okay, I'm gonna stop there. Okay. Alright, so... (laughs) So, uh, uh, what advice would you give MSA leaders who are facing bad shura? Um, Listen to this series. Hopefully that'll help a little. Um, Other than that, you can't really do much but be patient because when these kinds of problems exist, you just kind of have to work through them. Um... And if you, know, if you try to give advice that this is Najwa, I heard a lecture that this is Najwa, and people of Najwa, Surah Mujadala, burn in hell. If you do that, then probably your MSA president days are limited. <laughs> uh, my advice would just be, that's kind of why I did it also, so that if people give each other these advices, then it becomes personal. But I'm not in any shura. I'm on the outside. So hopefully it's impersonal. And if not, if this one guy says to the other, hey, you need to listen to this. That's also a personal attack. It needs to be like, everybody listen to this, okay? We're all gonna listen to this. So you have to depersonalize it. Because, you know, criticisms in, in organizational situations can become personal very, very quickly and things get ugly. Now, um, how do you establish a volunteer relationship with a friend? You do not. That just doesn't work. The Prophet ﷺ was best friends with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq anhu, and all of a sudden it became a leader-follower relationship. You know how that happened? Because he's the Rasul of Allah wasallam. Other than that, it's very difficult for a friend to be taken as an authority figure. It just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So you want to work with them? Fine. You want to work side by side with them? Fine. And if they're your friend, just give them very little or nothing. Don't give them work, because it'll ruin either the organization or your friendship. <laughs> but nothing good will come from it. Because it's, it's just, those things don't mix very well. Just like you can't have like, you can't be the younger brother and you're the MSA president and your older brother is like the secretary. It doesn't work. You're gonna get, you get slapped around at home by him and then you're gonna tell him to, you know, order the food or something. It's, it's not gonna happen. Okay? The mixed gender MSA thing, I'm gonna do a whole thing on this one. I'm gonna do a whole program called Shame. Just on this, just on first of all, how does Quran talk about shame, and where is it compromised for Muslim youth uh, that are religious and that are not religious? There's two kinds of Muslim youth, right? So I want to try to address both of them, and inshallah ta'ala, maybe offer some Quranic advice about these kinds of situations. More often than not, these are moral uh, stances than fatwas. If you understand the moral guidelines, 
and you can stick to them, you'll be fine. And if you don't understand them, you'll have problems. And here's just one moral guideline that I'm going to be sharing in the future. I'll just give it to you now. If you're standing there talking to some guy, sister, if you're talking to some dude on campus, uh, and somebody from a distance can get the wrong idea, like if your father was watching from a hundred feet away, and he would like be like, what's going on over there? Or your brother would get the wrong idea, or your husband would get the wrong idea, then you probably should not be in that situation. Okay, if it can be misinterpreted, then you shouldn't be in that situation. So that's kind of a litmus test sort of thing. As far as conversations are concerned, if you're completely comfortable having a conversation with a non-mahram in the same exact way if your father was standing there, and your, your tone wouldn't be any different, your body language wouldn't be any different, the words you use would be no different, then go ahead. But if you think that if your dad was standing there, or your husband was standing there, or your brother was standing there, or your grandpa was standing there, or let's just say if I was standing there, Okay, a grandpa, me, you know. So, and your 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 tone, your your the way you carry yourself, your inflections would be impacted even a little bit. Then probably you should not be in that conversation. These are good, easy litmus tests. They're not a fatwa. They're just litmus tests. You know, because if you think it's not, I'm not doing anything wrong. Then why are you changing your behavior if your dad's there? If it's not wrong, why are you so ashamed of it? Why are you so shocked by it? You see? So your inter- inner conscience is telling you there's something up. Um, but I won't go further in that one. That's a, that's a big one though. I do res- respect that that's a big problem. Can I just serve my parents and spend a life in solitary affairs with just immediate family, not to mention maintain their relations and roles in dunya? Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> what? That's, that's, that's good. If you want to just work on your family, that's work. That's enough work. If that's keeping your hands full, then yeah, don't volunteer at a masjid. Just do that. Can I learn Quran easy? Yes. How can I, oh, sorry, how can I learn Quran easy? Uh, I gave a talk about this yesterday at Plato, and hopefully it'll be up on YouTube. It's called um, The Importance of Learning Quran, but I actually talked about how to study Quran. That's what I spent my time doing. And I, I, Try to give a roadmap for how Muslims can study the Qur'an effectively. Like uh, milestones and roadmaps and how we can all be educated in the Qur'an in a good way, inshallah ta'ala. So hopefully you can benefit from that. Um, As a leader, how do you overcome the stress of your responsibility in order to lead and organize your organization? Video games. (laughs) When I get overstressed... I play video games. Then I play with my children and I sleep. I wake up and I can deal with it again. We're all human beings, we need a release. If it's basketball, if you want to like get a punching bag at home, for some people that are very spiritual, dua, qiyam al-layl, those are great. But if you're not into that sort of thing, the chances are you're not, I don't know you, then find some healthy release. You know? And don't, don't uh, overthink it. Don't overthink it. We should be concerned about our role, but we shouldn't be paralyzed by it. We shouldn't be paralyzed by it. We need, this life is about moving on. Life is not about, you know, everybody's got problems. And every, you know, we all have a to-do list, right? If, I just, if you took out a piece of paper right now and made a list of things you have to get done, it would probably be a pretty long list. And if you started thinking about getting all of those things done, you'd realize I can't get anything done. There's so much I haven't gotten done. If you made a list of things that you wanted to learn, that you haven't learned, right? 
you'd be depressed. Like, I haven't gotten anywhere. So you just have to take one day at a time, one problem at a time, and not look at the whole thing. What, what advice did they give Hibs kids? Kids that are memorizing Qur'an, you know, they just start out, they start with like, Juzamma, and they do two pages, and they hold the two pages together like this. Then they hold the rest of the Mus'haf, like this. And they go. <laughs> Don't worry about what's, what you haven't done. Worry about what you have done. And worry about the next page. That's it. Worry about the task at hand. That's it. Otherwise you'll get overwhelmed. And you won't be able to, to carry on. Um, when we serve a community at large for the sake of Allah, how to have a lot of sabr to graduate to the next level? Individually, how can we develop focus and value our deen, especially seeing that we are struggling with work-life balance? I personally believe balance in the life of a Muslim comes from a familiarity and a regular study of the Qur'an. That's what I personally believe. I personally believe that Qur'anic studies isn't just an academic exercise, it's the exercise of balance. This book balances uh, all of our priorities. It doesn't let you forget your obligations to your family, it doesn't let you forget your obligations to Allah and to your community, and it keeps you spiritually in check. And I feel that one of the biggest crises of the Muslim Ummah is that we as a people are distant from the Qur'an. We don't have a personal relationship with the Qur'an. That's why the talk I gave yesterday I feel is very important. I, I really usually don't think my talks are important, but I feel that one was. I honestly, I feel that one was. Because I gave it with my own kids in mind. How am I going to educate my own children in the Qur'an? Which means how will they have a personal, deep connection with Qur'an? How are they going to do that? That's what inspired that lecture. Um, I, if you know you're right, but you will keep it quiet, and you spelled it quite, for keeping the family together, how important is it to say what is right, or you should keep your silence for the better of the family. There is no such thing as keeping the family together by not speaking the truth. There is no such thing. That's a myth. That's what somebody in the family told you, don't say anything if you want to keep the family together. And that's in your head. Actually speaking the truth is not going to destroy your family. It's just going to be, unless it's like a really like traumatic secret that the family is holding, then see a counselor, then don't take my advice. But if it's just, you know, your dad's into like a haram business or something and you haven't said anything and you just dad isn't that a little haram just slip it in there get yelled at but say it say it at least it's off your chest get yelled at six months later again and bring it up again dad isn't that a little kind of messed up that we're we got a lotto machine at the, at the gas station <clears throat> isn't that kind of a little problematic I mean I feel bad about it you know we're eating halal chicken from haram money so, it's a <laughs> you know, slip it in, get yelled at, and slip it in again. Don't argue about it with your parents. You should speak the truth, and then take a beating, and then speak the truth, and take a beating again. That's the formula. Okay? But you don't not speak the truth. Um, what is your opinion on sisters sharing their knowledge in the masjid vicinity, giving a session or talk, like today, where they are usually not invited to speak because only men are usually in the lead to organize and invite speakers who are also men now can we take lead in doing work for the sake of Allah and not be prevented from that I don't know you got something to do, do it nobody's stopping you what's this thing over here what's this, what's this? you didn't see this flyer look at the, the people who personalize this question 
Very important flyer for you. It's a sister's program. Alhamdulillah, my mother-in-law is speaking at that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, sisters should do their own programs. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. I actually encourage it. And they, I, I feel we should have public sister role models for our girls. Because there's enough Disney role models for them. Honestly. Honestly. You know, I, w- I was at a program where Irshad Banji was speaking. You know who Irshad Banji is? Alhamdulillah, you don't know who Irshad Banji is. Okay? She was speaking. And she's a, she claims to be Muslim, right? But she's not Muslim. Okay? So I don't know what that is. But it's not Islam. Allah knows what's in her heart. But from her actions and her speech, that's not Islam. But you know, after she and she spoke, a couple of little girls in hijab went up to get her autograph. You know why? Because she's apparently Muslim, and she's a public figure. So she must be a role model. That was disturbing. We need to have role models for our girls. And they're, they're developed, we need to have strong tarbiyah for our daughters at home, so that they, when they come out of home, and they go to college, and they go, whatever they're gonna do in their lives, they guard their haya. They know how to guard their haya, and they know how to be strong, confident women at the same time. Our deen does not want our women to be like, not in the workplace or whatever. That's ridiculous. Musa salam saw a couple of girls that were, were herding sheep. They were herding sheep. But they knew how to handle themselves. It's in Quran guys. They knew how to handle themselves. They're like, they waited for the men to finish and they went. They didn't want to inappropriately mix in with the men and push and shove around them to feed their sheep. They, they waited for the men to finish. And when Musa salam went up to them and asked, what's your problem? What's going on over here? Why are you wrestling with these sheep? Ma khatbukuma. They were like, hee hee, astaghfirullah. They didn't do that. <laughs> they talked to him. La nasqi hatta abuna kabir. They were tough. They talked back to Musa alayhi salam. Musa alayhi salam is a big guy. And they're both like, yeah, we can't feed our sheep until those men are done. And our dad's a big sheikh, by the way. They were tough. You know? They were out in the workforce. Literally, women in the workforce. Forces, Surat Al-Qasas. So our, our deen doesn't say anything about that. And you know, one of the things that's really fascinating, I met Shaykh, um, uh, Shaykh uh, Akram Nadwi from, from Oxford. Okay? Shaykh Akram Nadwi is, has recently finished typing a 50 volume, 50 volume book on the female collectors of hadith. You know how we say muhaddith, hadith scholar? It's called al-muhaddithat. About 3,000 women in the history of Islam that were muhaddithat, including some of the teachers of Bukhari rahimahullah, Muslim rahimahullah, so on and so forth. He made an entire composite list of these 3,000 or so muhaddithat in Islamic history that are actually the mothers of hadith study. Just to show one point. And it's 50 volumes this man wrote. 50 volumes. First one's published in English. Get a copy. It's called the muhaddithat. Okay? Support the book. But... Why did he do that? To show that Islamic scholarship is not something that was owned by men. Women were equally, if not even more involved in Islamic scholarship. And it's always been the case. That's our tradition. It was so easy for us to have amnesia of our own history. SubhanAllah. Anyhow, I'll keep moving. Hafiz, why are you texting me? Uh, how should one deal with sincerity in public speaking? Um... You have to know yourself. I mean, you have to know why you're speaking, why you're opening your mouth. If you're, if I, I admit, speaking can turn into a performance. 
it can turn into theatrics. But if you're not clear about who you are, and, and my, my own personal remedy is two things for myself. I don't know if this is going to work for you, but this, for me, I've decided these are my two, two fixes for my own like, attempt at sincerity. One, I have, to be, I have to have close friends that I know that have known me since before I was on YouTube that are not impressed with me and never will be. That know me for who I really am. Those are your real friends. That aren't there because, they aren't your friends because you're a public figure, they're your friends because you played basketball with them back in the day and they scold you. Those are your friends. And they, they keep you in check, they keep you a human. They don't sit next to me and say, Brother Naman, I have a question. They don't do that. Yo, pass the chips. They keep you in check. Having elders that aren't impressed with you, around you, keeps you in check. That's alhamdulillah my parents. Just, they keep you in check. That's why our, our relationship with our parents is so important, because it keeps us from being arrogant. They test our patience more than anybody else. As you get older, you will be more irritated with what your father or your mother have to say, and you will have to be patient. That's what keeps you humble. You don't need a shaykh, you need your parents. Go to your parents, sit with them. Let your mom yell at you. Let, let, her, let, let her tell you how you know, silly your beard looks or how your hijab is ugly or something. And sit there and be quiet and don't talk back. That's humble check. So after you give a speech, go hang out with your mom or your dad. I'm not saying my mom does that. She's really nice. <laughs> but it, it's, it's really good to have a sound relationship with your parents. And then of course, the final fix for me personally is i'tikaf. You have to go and you have to find a place where nobody knows you. Don't give a talk when you're doing i'tikaf. Don't give a halaqa. Just go to be quiet. My atikaf this year was hajj. No, no talks. No pictures. No salam alaykum. Nothing. I'm just there to make hajj. That's it. I'm not there to give a halaqa. I want to bl- disappear. I want to blend in. That's all I want. You know? And if that for da'is, especially my advice for da'is, you have to go to atikaf if you can afford to go to umrah. And don't go to umrah with a group and advertise it on Facebook. Go by yourself. Don't take pictures there and post them. Go by yourself and come back and it's your little secret between you and Allah and that's it. That's what you do. Okay? Um, last one. What about Muslim women speaking publicly in terms of lowering the gaze? Isn't she sort of putting herself in front of men to look at? I don't know, that's a fiqh question. Um, And lowering the gaze is the men's responsibility, so I don't know how that works. But I would ask Shaykh Umar about that. But I know historically we have had female public speakers. That's been historically the case. Not necessarily sitting in front of a gathering of men, and uh, you know, with proper appropriate safeguards, but it's been there. We we have had that. Um, and the the other question that's been asked to me is also a fiqh question, and I think you should you should consult a fiqh for the gas station question. You can probably guess what that is, but yeah, that one I don't know the answer to. Inshallah. All right. Jazakumullahu khairan. Subhanakallahu bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Thank you so much for making the time today, inshallah ta'ala. Hopefully sometime soon we can do another series on another Qur'anic topic. Ibn Allah. Barakallahu li wa lakum. Assalamu alaikum.